Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're going to jump into the Word of God. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our Power Today series, a look at the book of Acts. We're learning a lot of incredible things this morning, a challenging message. The title is Turning Our World Upside Down for Jesus. Turning Our World Upside Down for Jesus. And that title comes from chapter 17 and verse 6, where it was said of Paul and Silas, an amazing statement. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You know, one of the things a Christian should do is make a difference. God has empowered us by the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He wants us to make a difference in the world around us, in the lives of the people that we meet. There are some people who do. There are some Christians, on the other hand, who have absolutely no effect on their world or the people around them. Here's what's extraordinary about this statement. Paul and Silas have just arrived in Thessalonica, which is 100 miles from the city of Philippi where they just were. They hadn't been in Philippi more than maybe three weeks, and already word has traveled a hundred miles, and the view of Paul and Silas is from just what they did in Philippi is these people have turned the world upside down. And when the world says you've turned it upside down in a matter of a few weeks, that's amazing. God wants you and I to be people who make an impact, people who make a difference, a difference in our home, a difference at our workplace, a difference in our neighborhood, a difference wherever we go, wherever we're around people. We should leave that place different than we found it in Jesus' name. Question is, how do we do that? How can you and I make a difference? What do we need to do? In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas are going to visit three cities. They're going to visit Thessalonica. They're going to visit a town called Berea. They're going to go to Athens in Greece, and they're going to make a difference in all of those places, and they do it by implementing what I would call six principles to help us make a difference. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, don't be afraid to share the gospel with others. I got to be honest with you. A lot of people never get past this point because a lot of people are afraid. They're like, you know, I just don't know. People get afraid of what people will think, what people will say, what people might do. Honestly, if anybody could have been afraid, it was, it was Paul and Silas, right? I mean, they went to Philippi and they were beaten with rods they were flogged, then they were thrown in a dungeon, in a, a prison, their feet fastened in stocks. Been very easy for them to say, you know what? I think we ought to play it safe. I think we ought to go back to where we came from. We could just teach on that pastoral staff there. We were doing a good job at that. We let somebody else go. Somebody else can do the talking. Somebody else can witness. We just need to let our wounds heal up. But they didn't do that. 
They overcame their fears. You say, oh, I don't think Paul was afraid of anything. And when you read the New Testament, if you don't read it closely or carefully, you could get the idea Paul could take anything, that he was just tough. He didn't care, but that's not true. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 18, listen to this. This is very interesting. Now he's at Corinth, and the synagogue ruler gets saved, his entire household. Many Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. You think, oh, wow, it's going really great. But no, there was opposition there. And as Paul experiences that opposition, he remembers what happened at Philippi, and he's afraid. So one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. That's a word for every single one of us today. Some of you maybe have been intimidated at your workplace. Others, perhaps you feel like people tune you out, so why would you even say anything? And some have family members who seem totally disinterested, and that's maybe kept you from speaking the truth, but the words Jesus spoke to Paul are the same words that he's speaking to you and I. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you, and if you'll just believe the Lord is with you, he'll give you the courage to talk to people about the gospel. Can't be afraid of what people will think. We can't be afraid to share the gospel. And so if you're one of those, you're like, I just don't know. I don't know if I can do it. Remember, Jesus is with you. Remember, Jesus will help you. Remember that even when we're afraid, sometimes what that does is it causes us to rely on the Lord in a way we wouldn't have otherwise, because you're going to be praying more. You're going to be asking him to help you more. And when you pray more and you ask him to help you more, guess what? He's going to do that. So sometimes that feeling can just make you even stronger. So don't give in to fear. Number two, start a conversation with people. If we want to lead people to the Lord, we've got to talk to people. You've heard me say this, and if you got this plaque on, on the wall in your home or in your office, God love you. But I completely disagree with it because I think it's anti-New Testament. It goes like this. Preach the gospel always when necessary. Say words. And it's supposedly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which we have no sense that he ever, any proof that he ever said that. And furthermore, it's completely contrary to the New Testament. In fact, whenever I say that, I just think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because <laughs> you have to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel, you got to talk. To talk, you got to use words. Words make a difference. Words carry the weight of the Spirit. I get the idea of living a godly life, and every one of us should, with our life and with our actions, not undo what we say with our mouth. But we shouldn't keep our mouth silent and just say, I'm going to live a life, and that'll be my message. No. The Bible, Jesus said this, go and preach the gospel to all living creatures, right? He told us to go and talk. He told us to go and preach. Listen, your religion is not a personal and a private thing. It is a public thing that God intended for you and I to share with people. It's a lie from the pit of hell that religion is private and personal. It's ridiculous. You couldn't find that anywhere in 
the, the Bible. The Bible says that, that our, our life, we're an epistle known and read by all oh, men. They see it. They see how we live. They hear what we say. It's as you and I speak. It is as you and I pray. It is as you and I talk to them and share the good news that we encourage them and that we break the chains of darkness that bind people in Jesus' name, right? We've got to have a conversation. We want to talk to people. We can't wait for people to come to us. We have to go to them. Look at this. It's so interesting. In Acts 17 and verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, here's a map just to give you a sense. Remember, they started from Antioch. They went to Derby and uh, Lystra. Lystra, they pick up Timothy. They go on to Iconium. They go over to Troas. This is about a nine-month journey, 590 miles. Uh, the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go down into Asia, wouldn't let them go north into Bithynia. Paul has a vision. A man from Macedonia, this area is Macedonia, in his vision is saying, come help us. So they talk about it. They pray about it. They make the journey over to Macedonia. The first place they go is Philippi. And we read about that in Acts chapter 16. Then they pass these two places. Why do they pass Amphipolis and Apollonia? It's because there's no synagogue there, is what most scholars believe. They go to Thessalonica, there's a Jewish synagogue there. They're going to go to Berea, there's a Jewish synagogue there. They're going to go to Athens, there's a Jewish synagogue there. Here's what they do when they go into the synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word there, reasoned, we get our word dialogue from it. He dialogued with them. In other words, it wasn't just a one-way conversation in the synagogue. They're asking questions. He's answering them. There's a conversation that takes place. In verse 10 of Acts 17, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. In chapter 17 and verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned, there's the word again, he dialogued with them. He conversed with them in the synagogue. But he doesn't just limit it to the synagogue, a gathering of Jewish people who believe in, in the God of the Bible. But he goes out into the marketplace as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. It's an interesting statement, those who happened to be there. That means, uh, I think the King James put, whoever he chanced to meet. So whoever comes in his path, Paul's going to talk to them about the gospel. I don't know whether you've thought about that, but too many times what happens is we, we're like, we're like um, the uh, loan officer, and we're trying to pre-qualify people for the gospel. You know, we're like, do they, do they look interested? Check. Or if they don't look interested, like, no, they don't look interested. So we move on to the next person. They pass that application on. We, we move on, and then we say, do they look interested? Do they seem nice? Do they seem like they get angry? Do they seem desperate? Do they seem we give all these checklists to determine, to pre-qualify people that we're going to share Christ with? And the problem with that is you and I see on the outside, but God sees what on the inside? Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. The problem is you and I don't know what God's been doing in their life. 
We don't know what he's been speaking to their heart. We don't know circumstantially really what's going on in their life. We don't know what they're thinking. We can't read people's thoughts. And they may not look interested at all. And the reality would be they are ready to make a decision for Christ. That's why you and I can't judge by the exterior, by the facade of people. We just have to say, you know what? If God puts somebody in my heart, that's somebody I need to talk to. Or in my path, that's somebody I need to talk to. If God, if God crosses paths, has me cross paths with somebody, then I'm going to share Christ with them. So Paul does. He goes to the, he's in the marketplace. There are shopkeepers, you know, people that are entertaining the public. There are artists, there are philosophers, there are musicians. And Paul just talks to whoever crosses his path. I want to challenge you. If God brings somebody in your path, that's an opportunity to share the gospel. That's an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord. That's an opportunity, at the very least, to invite them to church. If, if you're not in a setting where you can have an in-depth conversation, what you could do is just talk to them about the Lord and invite them to church. Last week, we were down in Branson, and we were uh, with our leadership team there, so we had uh, a bunch of the staff there, and we were at the Hilton Convention Center, and I was walking down the steps, and there was uh, a woman that was cleaning there, and and I just stopped and, and said, commented on uh, how beautiful everything looked and how much I appreciated what she was doing. And that led, my purpose was to lead to a conversation. I began to talk just a little bit. And as we talked, it gave me the opportunity because, you know, she was trying to get a job done and there were people moving around. Give me an opportunity to, at the very least, to talk to her about church and to ask whether she was going to church and she wasn't and to invite her to church. And then last Sunday afternoon, one of our uh, staff pastors, Jeremy Black, sent me this email. He said, I thought you'd be encouraged to know that Yvonne came Sunday and was saved. She mentioned that you had invited her while at the Hilton this past weekend. She hasn't been in church since she was a child. You never know the power of an invite or what God will do. You just never know. You don't know where people are at. You don't know what people will need. So wherever we go, God is continually positioning us to share Christ with people. And we have to believe that. We have to believe that, that it's not just what we can do, but what, it's what he's done in their life leading up to that moment. If you're from a Methodist background, then you're familiar with John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and, and he had a concept that he called prevenient grace. And uh, essentially what it said that before you and I ever meet somebody, God has prevened upon them. He has gone previously to them and has worked his grace in their life to get them ready for the conversation you're going to have with him. That he's been speaking to them, that he's been talking to them, that he's been working in their life. You know, the longer I pastor, the more people I meet, the more I know that's true. It doesn't matter what background they're from or any background or no background. God is working. God is speaking to people. God is talking to people. God is preparing people because God loves people and he's sending us to people. Number three, give people the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them who he is. Tell them what he's done. 
Look at it in verse 2 of Acts 17. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. What did he tell them? Explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. When you go into verse 18 later in the chapter, is it as he's at Athens, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So the Epicureans were like pretty much of the uh, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Just have all the pleasure you can get. The Stoic philosophers are more like, you know, keep a stiff upper lip, keep control of yourself, endure hardship, don't complain, and things will work out all right. So they're arguing with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? So here's Paul. He's in a foreign city. He is in the marketplace. He's dealing with uh, philosophers, well-educated, well-connected people, and they're making fun of him. And he doesn't say, okay, you're making fun of me. I'm not going to say anything more. No, what he does, he's, he, they're talking to him. Others remark he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, people might not agree with it. They might not understand it. They may think you're unsophisticated. They might think you're naive. But the power of the gospel is not in our explanation. It's just simply in the message. Our job is simply to tell them the good news about Jesus, that God so loved people that he sent his only son to die for the sins of people, that when they put their faith in him, he powerfully, miraculously changes their heart. Seems too simple, seems too good to be true, but it's a hundred times true, a thousand times true. And then what you do is you begin to tell him what he's done for you. That's, that's what witnessing really is. What does a witness do? They tell things from their perspective. They tell their side of the story. So tell your side of the story. Tell them, what, what has Jesus done for you? Nobody can argue with that. If I tell you what Jesus has done for me, you can't argue with that. You just have to say, well, that's what he says Jesus did for him, right? Tell him how he changed your life. Tell him how he works in your life. So I just don't know. Where do I start? How about you tell him about a county commissioner whose leg grew an inch? You're like, really? Yeah. Go up to him and say, hey, you want to hear a story? We've had people at the church lately, and their legs have grown an inch instantly. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, one of them's county commissioner. Hi, Rusty. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he'd be delighted to give glory to God through his testimony. And people, when they hear that, what are you going to say? I mean, it's true. But you start with that and you say, you know, that just shows you the power of the gospel and the truth of what I'm saying, that what we're talking about in the Bible is absolutely true. Listen, our gospel is powerful. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I love this verse, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation, the deliverance, the life change of anyone or everyone who believes. Number four, start with where people are at spiritually. This is very, very interesting. With the Jewish people, they go to the synagogue. They start with where they're at spiritually. With the Greeks, Paul goes to the place where the philosophers are, and he starts with where they're at spiritually. Acts chapter 17 and verse 19, 
they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they invite Paul to the Areopagus, and in Latin it would be Mars Hill, would be the name of it. It's less a, a um, it's, it's not like it's a building, it's more of an institution. It would be like the Athenian Supreme Court. The Areopagus was peopled by 30 individuals who would determine uh, murder cases, uh, people that were blaspheming their pagan gods, and they would also listen to philosophy and they would judge its value. So here's Paul, and Paul is going and he's saying, listen, I want to explain this to you. And he starts with where they're at spiritually. Now here's what's interesting. He doesn't go in there and he doesn't say, what's up with all the demonic gods here? You know, you're going to draw more flies with honey than you are with vinegar, okay? So you're not going to help people by insulting people. You're not going to, you're not going to win the world by being nasty and abrasive. Paul starts with where they're at. Does it bother him that there are all those pagan gods? Absolutely it does. I mean, we read this, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I mean, it really bothered him, which I find so interesting because he's going to all these cities and they all have these pagan temples and all, but Athens has even more. And as he's going along there, what happens is he sees an, an altar and it's marked to the unknown God. You say, what's that about? Well, the Athenians had had a plague that swept through and killed a number of people. And so what they did is they began to, to do kind of a self-evaluation. Listen, is there one of our gods we've dishonored that would cause them to send that plague on us? And they came to the conclusion, no, man, we've been, we've been batting a thousand when it comes to the worship of our gods. We've taken good care of them. So if it's not our gods who did that to us, it must be another god. And we don't know who that is, so in order for us not to have him come out after us again, we're going to build an altar to the unknown god, and we're going to offer sacrifices to placate him. So Paul sees this altar. Watch what he does in verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. Now, today, people don't, people don't say, I'm religious. People say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? If I've heard that once, I've heard it a bazillion times. So if you're using that line, it's not very original, but that's okay. If that's where you're at, then let's talk spirituality. Let's talk about what your spirituality is like. Let's talk about what it's doing for you. Let's talk about the power behind it because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. So let's, let's, let's just talk practice. Does it do anything for you? Does it help you? How does it help you? Is there power to it? Can you actually see situations change? Does it actually change your life? Or does it just kind of just sit there? I mean, that's a good place to start. Paul says, I see you're religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. So he starts with where they're at, and he says, you're saying it's an unknown God. Let me just tell you about the God you don't know that you're going to want to know because he's an amazing God. And then he starts telling them what he's like. He says, number one, he made the world. He tells them, number two, he gives breath to every living creature and even quotes one of their poets, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, our, this God, you don't know, he's the one who creates nations and directs the path and course, course of nations. And then he gets down to where the rubber meets the road. He's a good God and he cares about people and he's active in the events of life. But he's also a God who commands all people everywhere, no one exempt, to repent. And then he says this, because someday he's going to judge the world. The Bible's very clear. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Everybody's going to be judged. It's a part of the gospel. People don't want to maybe hear that, but everybody needs to know it. There is a heaven. There is a hell. Not all roads lead to heaven. And it's true what the Bible says. And then he goes on and says, and the judge is a man by the name of Jesus. He will judge the world. Verse 31, it says, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He lays it out for them. He starts with where they're at. He gives them a, he, where they're at spiritually, and he gives them the basic facts. Why? Because in presenting the basic aspects of the gospel, there's, a, there's an inherent power in it that will change people's lives. I mean, we're going to see at the end of the chapter, people get saved when they hear Paul say just that. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in their heart, changing their life. That brings me to a fifth thing I want you to see. Demonstrate God's power with signs and wonders. Now, this is super applicable to you and I. Because one of the things that was a part of Paul's ministry is there were signs and wonders. You say, well, where is it in, in chapter 17? Well, in chapter 17, chapter 18, Luke doesn't record any signs and wonders, but we know that Paul did them. We know it because of what Paul writes in chapter 18. It's all about the city of Corinth. Doesn't say anything about signs, wonders, and miracles, but Paul himself, when he writes the Corinthians, talks extensively about power. And implied in that, as we're going to see, miracles, signs, and wonders. Signs and wonders are not only meant and designed to meet the needs of people, but to validate the ministry or the proclamation of the gospel. So when we tell them, people, there's a God who loves them, and he's real, and he's powerful enough to change their life, and then they see him powerful enough to give one a new liver or to give somebody a, a leg that's even or to heal Ray of of terminal bladder cancer, or, or you know, we can, we can sit here and name all of the miracles we've seen. And the list is very, very extensive. I'm just telling you, it is, and it's unbelievable. That's proof. It's designed to prove. Jesus says, if you won't 
believe the words I say than believe the miracles I do because they testify that what I'm saying is true. That's the purpose of signs and wonders. Watch what Paul says in, to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He says, I wasn't trying to out-debate you. Listen, you're never going to argue somebody into salvation. You're never going to one-up somebody into salvation. Paul says, I'm not going to fight a battle on that level with you. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided I'm going to keep it very, very simple. And then he says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. You say, I, I, I just don't feel, I, I feel like I'm not, I don't know enough. I, I feel uneasy about this. I'm not sure. Join the club. Because what happens is when you and I are there, when I am weak, Paul will later write to the Corinthians, then I am strong. When I feel I'm in over my head, that's the time God's power is ready to use me. So you've been thinking because you felt weak and because you felt inadequate, it exempted you and, and you've missed it completely because when you felt weak and inadequate, it meant God was getting ready to demonstrate his power through you. Watch what he says. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. He says all these teachers, and he kind of puts it in quotes, who are misleading the Corinthians. He says, I'm going to come, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. They're better talkers than I am, but the kingdom of God is not about talk. Let's see how many miracles they can do. It's an interesting challenge. He did a lot of them. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 4, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he lists several ways in truthful speech and in the power of God. You say, but where are the miracles in this? Next verse, chapter 12, verse 12. The things that mark an apostle signs, plural, wonders, plural, miracles, plural, were done among you with great perseverance. They were, they were happening. Miracles, signs, wonders, all those things. Listen, you want to know one of the great ways to evangelize somebody? Is to say, can I pray with you? What could I pray with you about that would cause you? You know, I've done that before. I remember when I was in the hospital in, in uh, California after that surgery, my nurse there was a guy named Peter, sharp guy. I was talking to him about the Lord. He said, I'm not interested in all that stuff. I'm not even sure I believe in it. I said, well, Peter, let me ask you this. What could I pray with you about that if it happened, you would know there is a God? He said, well, I have a big exam coming up, and if I pass it, because it was a big certification exam. I said, okay. Let's pray. I don't know exactly what I prayed because I had about 104, 105 degree fever. But so I was probably delirious. I probably prayed a lot of things, but I did pray for that, I remember. <laughs> I never did get to see Peter again, but it doesn't matter. You say, why? Because God answered that prayer. And the God of the universe picked up where I left off.
because I was simply just trying to come alongside what he'd already been doing, right? Listen, God is showing you miracle after miracle, signs and wonders, because some of you, honestly, when the whole thing started, you weren't even sure you believed him when you're hearing the testimonies, but now it's just too many not to believe, right? Because you can go talk to him, you can go look, you can see the doctor reports, you can have all that, and you're like, huh, something's happening. This is real, this is true, this works. You're in a, honestly, we're so blessed because we're in this, we're in a season where we're seeing this. I mean, like, how many of you grew up with this and it was just regular all the time? Be very few hands. I was here 30 years. For 29 years, I didn't see any of it. Hardly at all. It was unusual if there was one. It was like unbelievable. Now it's like, try to narrow it down to the number of testimonies I'm going to tell you each week. I'm just telling you, God is visiting us in a unique way because God wants to use you in a wonderful way to bring about a great awakening that I believe is bigger than this church and bigger than Springfield and bigger than Southwest Missouri. I believe the Lord is visiting this church as a part of what the Spirit of God is doing across the nation to bring about a great awakening. I believe there's a great awakening coming. There was a first great awakening. There was a second great awakening. There was a third great awakening. There was a fourth great awakening. I believe we're getting ready for a fifth great awakening that is gonna sweep millions of people into the kingdom. And joy of joys, we have the privilege to be a part of it and to be one of the places where God is moving so powerfully, right? You say, but what if I talk to them and they don't, they don't come to Jesus? What if, what if it doesn't work out? What if they get angry? Or what if, listen, that's the sixth thing. Leave the results to God. You know, the fact of the matter is you and I don't know. I mean, in, in Thessalonica, there was a church in Berea. There was a church. Paul loved that church at Thessalonica. Even though he got run out of town, he loved those people. But in Athens, there wasn't a church. There were believers, but apparently a church was never formed. We don't know why, but we just leave that with God. We say, you know what? Our job, our job is simply to join the Holy Spirit in talking to people about the Lord. And when we do that, it's going to change their lives. And it's going to change our life because you're gonna feel the pleasure of heaven. The Bible says this, he who winneth souls is wise. It's a wise thing to do, it's a good thing to do, it's a godly thing to do, and it will change the lives of people around you.